I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Radio Westeros, episode 48. Gold for Iron. Spoilers all books. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and today I'm bringing you an episode all about the prologue to A Feast for Crows. We'll begin with an overview of the chapter, before going on to look at the insights we get about the way news travels in George's world. The introduction of a brand new setting with Old Town and the Citadel being seen for the first time, and then take a close look at the two identity mysteries that are introduced here by exploring who Alaris the Sphinx and the Alchemist really are. We'll wrap things up with some thoughts on the major themes introduced and the purpose this chapter serves to the overall narrative. And if you enjoy this episode and our most recent release, all about the Will prologue from A Game of Thrones, I want to mention that our patrons have access to an episode all about the Varamir prologue from A Dance with Dragons, as well as an episode all about the Arthurian influences of A Song of Ice and Fire, and most recently, an episode recorded at last spring's Ice and Fire Con, all about world building in Westeros. Your pledge of $3 per regular episode can gain you access to all of those bonus episodes, along with other perks of being a patron. So visit patreon.com slash Radio Westeros to find out more. And speaking of patrons, now's the time that we thank our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wigarian, Pepper, Whitney, and Sister Winter. Thanks so much, everyone. We appreciate you and your support, and we'd like to extend a warm welcome to all of our new patrons. And now it's time to get started with Pate. It's the first part you'll read when you open the book, but it was not the first part I wrote. It was not even close to being the first part I finished, and indeed, I took five years to finish A Feast for Crows, and this chapter was a great part of that difficulty. Sometimes, I think I spent a year just on this prologue. George R.R. Martin In 2005, George spoke about the Pate prologue on an episode of his podcast. 
He mentioned that this wasn't the first chapter he wrote, nor was it even close to being the first chapter he finished. In fact, it was apparently a very difficult chapter for him to write, and he rewrote it numerous times, including from several viewpoints, Molander and Rosie included, before deciding that it worked best with Pate. At a Comic-Con in 2006, he noted that at one time the Feast for Crows prologue was over 200 pages long. It was at this point that he realized something wasn't working, decided the book would be split, and wove numerous elements from the original prologue into the main story. And if we consider that George stated that he originally wrote this prologue using various other viewpoints, only to decide that wasn't working, we can perhaps see a shadow of this process in the two chapters set in Old Town that bookend A Feast for Crows, Pate and Sam, which involve a similar cast of characters, at least in part. Let's say that we originally had one very long chapter written from Melander's or Rosie's or Alaris's viewpoint, which included Pate's odd behavior, the alchemist, the news of dragons, Sam arriving at the Citadel, and Marwyn's departure. But this didn't work because George knew that we had to be in Pate's head for that part of the story to be effective. But writing it that way meant that he lost a point of view for the later material after Pate died. So giving Sam an Old Town point of view in his own chapters makes a lot of sense, and given his gardening style, we can see how George would be able to capitalize on Sam's presence in various locations along the way, because Sam's journey to Old Town allows him to meet Arya and Bravos, for instance. When George realized the prologue viewpoint had to be Pate, that he had to move all the other Old Town material to an already existing character who happened to be in Old Town, or introduce an entirely new character, Sam was likely the obvious choice. This prologue has a lot of work to do, introducing a brand new location and numerous mysteries, providing a foundation for the upcoming Citadel storyline, and establishing the fact that news about Daenerys is beginning to make its way to Westeros. At the same time, it has to contain sufficiently compelling characters to hook the reader and be a self-contained drama, as the other prologues have been. The theme of convergence, of threads coming together, is a major one during both Feast and Dance, and that theme is established in this chapter in numerous subtle ways, as we'll see. We'll begin our journey to Old Town now with a recap of the chapter before moving on to more in-depth analysis. Throughout, we'll reference George's own podcast on the chapter, which we'll link on our website. Like so many other things in George's world, it all starts with dragons. Dragons, said Melander. He snatched a withered apple off the ground and tossed it hand to hand. Throw the apple, urged Alaris the Sphinx. He slipped an arrow from his quiver and knocked it to his bowstring. I should like to see a dragon. Rune was the youngest of them, a chunky boy, still two years shy of manhood. I should like that very much. So, the first word of A Feast for Crows, and this prologue, is dragons. As well as the obvious and direct reference to the three hatched dragons currently making their mark in Essos with Daenerys, the reader should remember that dragons are also a form of currency, a golden coin of some value. 
Wallander mentions the dragons first, while toying with an apple that Alaris is ready to shoot down from the sky with his bow and arrow. Rune, a young boy, replies to Molander that he should like to see a dragon very much. Then Pate, the point of view, thinks, and I should like to sleep with Rosie's arms around me, before restlessly continuing to daydream of the girl and of whisking her away to a faraway place where he would not be followed by maesters. This indirectly introduces the bunch as students of the Citadel, and this opening can be considered relatively idyllic for A Song of Ice and Fire. Young men or boys excitedly discussing the news of magical dragons, outdoors, shooting apples for sport. It's a wholesome setting so far, but every prologue needs a pinch, meaning a device for hooking in readers with some early tension or conflict. Pate's adorable devotion to Rosie, young love, is soon developed into that pinch. Emma, who's an older serving wench at the Quill and Tankard Inn, where the group is sitting outside, is offering the maidenhead of her 15-year-old daughter, Rosie, for a golden dragon. As exploitative and cruel as that sounds, Pate believes that if he's the one to pay, then his romantic fantasies of love and travel and absconding with Rosie will come true. He must believe that not only will he escape his own situation, but he could also save Rosie from a life of sexual exploitation. And so Pate has been desperately saving his money. But his doubtful and worried thoughts inform us that he's struggling to find the funds by legitimate means. It says he would have a better chance of hatching real dragons than saving up enough coin to make a golden one. We realize the depth of his desperation and that he now faces a race against time to procure the golden dragon before someone else, who likely has no genuine care for Rosie, beats him to it. It might now take, or has taken, a criminal maneuver on Pate's part to succeed, and this is where the pinch begins to drive the narrative and direction of this prologue all the way to its conclusion, just as the tension of Waymar enforcing the investigation of the missing wildlings did in the A Game of Thrones chapter. Then Armin the Acolyte is introduced amidst the group, with his four maesters links, speaking out about the death of dragons. He's a qualified young man who, quote, seemed to believe that novices had turnips growing from their shoulders instead of heads. The mentions of Old Town, Maesters, Acolytes, and Novices allow the reader to confirm that these are indeed students of the Citadel, an intellectual fraternity where Maesters come to learn their various skills. George has chosen to demonstrate this group's reactions to the Dragon News, perhaps as the microcosm of the macrocosm, but also to display much about these characters. Armin, the learned, is a skeptic. Melander is curious and a believer. Young Rune reveals childlike naivete and excitability, yet Pate and Alaris, preoccupied with a golden dragon and weapon practice respectively, both seem to have other issues on their minds. Alaris is described as attractive and continues to call for the apple to be thrown, ignoring the debate as to whether real dragons could be alive in Westeros, as seafarers passing through Old Town have claimed. George continues to unfurl the chapter with three things happening together, cutting back and forth. The group continue their debate. Pate's private thoughts continue to obsess with Rosie and the acquisition of the coin. And finally, descriptions and information about the group are weaved in. Mollender, with his strong build and thick arms, would surely have been a knight like his father if it wasn't for his club foot. Being a fraternity and a respectable place for a young man to be of service, the Citadel 
might be comparable to the Night's Watch of old in some respects. And certainly, Molander seems to have arrived on these shores in lieu of fulfilling his destiny as a knight. Ruminating on such matters, our minds can never drift too far from Samuel Tarley, who seems destined to find honor at both the Night's Watch and the Citadel, in spite of his father's disdain. He had the strength for it in those thick arms and broad shoulders. Far and fast the apple flew, but not as fast as the arrow that whistled after it, a yard-long shaft of golden wood fletched with scarlet feathers. Pate did not see the arrow catch the apple, but he heard it. A soft chunk echoed back across the river, followed by a splash. Malander whistled. You cored it! Sweet! Not half as sweet as Rosie. Molander's throwing of the apple describes his strength and background. Alaris's coring of the apple shows his prowess with a serious bow, and Pate's reaction underscores his fixation with Rosie. Through this chapter, George weaves his descriptions and pertinent character information into the narrative seamlessly and with great skill, where lesser writers might simply have info dumped. And next, we have more of Pate's thoughts about Rosie. His description of tickling her toes and her giggling paints a picture of an innocent sort of love. Where others might just lust after her maidenhead, Pay is full of tenderness. His fantasy about hiring a donkey to escape the confines of the citadel, where men are not allowed wives, and the elaborate daydream of traversing Westeros on some Duncan Egg-style adventure seems both sweet and naive. Pate's love reveals a fantasist streak in him, and the reader senses in this gritty world that his plans will likely be dashed. We soon learn that Pate had once had other dreams, which were predictably doomed, and he emerges as a rather sympathetic figure. Once he had dreamed of being a maester in a castle, in service to some open-handed lord who would honor him for his wisdom and bestow a fine white horse on him to thank him for his service. How high he'd ride, how nobly, smiling down at the small folk when he passed them on the road. One night in the Quill and Tankard's common room, after his second tankard of fearsomely strong cider, Pate had boasted that he would not always be a novice. Too true, Lazy Leo had called out. You'll be a former novice, herding swine. Idealists like Pate draw our sympathy because they speak to a naivete, compassion, and sensitivity that can all be endearing qualities. We've all, at some stage, grown out of adolescence and had to face the various disappointments of the real world, and so perhaps there's a tiny bit of Pate in all of us somewhere. Yet Pate hasn't yet realized that his daydream idealism and hopeless romanticism will ultimately hinder him. And with all the previous prologue point-of-view characters meeting their ends eventually, the reader wonders which dangerous path Pate will choose in this chapter. With the story of Lazy Leo bursting the boy's bubble on a previous occasion, we can consider that this prologue will ultimately be an account of a dream painfully falling apart piece by piece, and moreover, whether a tragedy is being set up. As the alchemist is introduced in Pate's thoughts, a mysterious man whose current lateness is agitating our point of view, the novice thinks, fitting with the aforementioned theme, that it would not have been the first time that good fortune had turned sour on Pate. 
Through unluckiness, incompetence, or both, Pate recalls that he was chosen to help Archmaester Walgrave and his ravens, which he had once believed would at least entitle him to the Black Iron Link of Ravenry. However, Pate's daydreaming reached an abrupt end when he realized Walgrave's age and infirmity not only required him to be no more than a de facto caregiver, soiled small clothes washer, and chambermaid, but that the old man was no longer licensed to award Maester's links. Instead, Maester Gorman was the judge of the Black Iron Link, and he believes Pate to be a thief. This thought is juxtaposed with the reveal that Alaris is celebrating that night, having gained a copper link, and is buying drinks. Whereas we would expect Pate to be feeling jealous, his point of view instead reveals an overriding guilt, leading to the quaffing of strong cider. He begins to perceive a nightingale's song as gold for iron, gold for iron, gold for iron. And we can guess that this mysterious business and Pate's guilt both have something to do with the alchemist. We get quick confirmation of this when Pate remembers that gold for iron was what a stranger had said, quote, the night Rosie had brought the two of them together. The alchemist had flaunted a golden dragon, seeming to know full well how desperate Pate was for Rosie, in exchange for the theft of something unnamed. Pate's response, I am no thief, calls back to Gorman's accusation, for reasons left ambiguous for the time being. The alchemist asked Pate to reconsider and said that he'd be back in three days. And it occurs to the reader that here and now is that third day. Pate is waiting for the man, preparing to abscond forever, feeling guilty, and has very likely stolen something the alchemist desired. The plot for this prologue thickens, all driven by Pate's love for Rosie. But instead of the alchemist, Pate ran into his friends. Alaris, Armin, Molander, and Rune, and, careful not to raise suspicions, he was obliged to join their celebrations, when in fact it was the last thing this nervous character really wanted to do. This situation creates an interesting dynamic, as it necessitates his outward personality must conceal his inner turmoil, worry, and secrets. The setting is then given more depth, as the Quillen Tankard is described as a historic 600-year-old inn whose river and outdoor seating area seem picturesque, and whose apple tree might just serve further purpose than as merely arrow targets. There's a good possibility they're the source of the frequently mentioned strong cider. This tipple seems to have affected Molander, who drunkenly continues the debate on the curious sailor stories coming from the East. Armin objects due to the sheer variation of the stories. Dragons in a shy, dragons in Karth, dragons in Marine, Dothraki dragons, dragons fleeing slaves, which Molander sees as strength to the rumor, given that they only vary in detail. What Danny has done with her dragons in Essos is quite unbelievable, and the reader knowing that these tales are all largely true causes amusement as we see the rather snooty Armin continue his dismissals. Ultimately, we arrive at Pate, who only cares about a dragon of a different sort. The alchemist was absent, and Pate faces the ordeal of suffering for whatever crime he has committed, without gaining any of the reward. The tension is broken by a drunken Molander, who throws a wormy apple up high, nearly landing on Armin. It says Alaris looked as if he knew a secret jape, hinting to a mystery around his character, which we'll cover in depth later in the episode. Alaris wishes apples were like worms, forever dividable, and we learn that the comely young man is also rather smart. 
He's forged three links to his chain in only a year, compared to Armin's four in four years. And the final comparison is with poor old Pate. He had been five years at the Citadel, arriving when he was no more than three and ten, yet his neck remained as pink as it had been on the day he first arrived from the Westerlands. Twice he had believed himself ready. The first time he had gone before Archmaester Valen to demonstrate his knowledge of the heavens. Instead, he learned how Vinegar Valen had earned that name. It took Pate two years to summon up the courage to try again. This time, he submitted himself to the kindly old Archmaester Ebros, renowned for his soft voice and gentle hands. But Ebros's sighs had somehow proved just as painful as Valen's barbs. So we framed Pate as a sympathetic character, and this passage gives that perception some depth. With his dreams of riding a white horse with his maester's chain, the reality is that Pate is failing to make any progress at all at the Citadel after five years. Now 18, having given his adolescence to the institution, Pate was refused a link for knowledge of the heavens after Vinegar Valen displayed his sourness, and then with Archmaester Ebros, he failed to earn a link for healing. And now he has some knowledge of Ravencraft, and perhaps deserves a link, and it's Maester Gorman, the man who's taken a dislike to Pate on account of a seemingly false suspicion of theft, who stands in his way. After all of this, imagine being Pate when, having cleaned up Walgrave's soiled small clothes, he joins Alaris in celebrating a third link in his first year. Aside from his love of Rosie, this professional frustration is driving him into the path of the mysterious alchemist. Alaris misses his last shot, but vows to improve, and a further exposition is offered of the character. Nicknamed the Sphinx because he's a mixture of different things, namely having a summer islander for a mother and a Dornish father, he appears educated and well-moneyed after quaffing expensive wine and buying rounds for his friends. Incidentally, the mention of the Sphinx, as well as the dragon has three heads, are references to two prophecies mentioned elsewhere in the series, but best covered in a future episode. Anyway, Alaris soon demonstrates a keen knowledge of Targaryen history, proclaiming Daenerys to be alive and jogging Molander's memory. In his cups, Molander toasts to the Dragon Queen before Armin warns the group of the reach of Lord Varys. And then a voice calls Molander Hopfrog, on account of his foot, and names him a traitor. Will Westeros believe in Daenerys and her dragons before she lands? Will people cheer for her, be afraid to, or outright oppose her? These are the questions that this prologue toys with very succinctly, again, as these opinions are represented by the characters in the group, the microcosm of the macrocosm. And now the group will introduce a sixth character into the fold, as the stranger's voice belonged to Lazy Leo, who Pate had thought of earlier. So far, the main external conflict within the group has been the well-behaved debates between Molander and Armin. While Armin can be slightly preachy, he's not an antagonist of any sort, and so you could say that that is what's been missing from the chapter. Leo seems antagonistic from the offset, persisting in joining the group after Molander tells him he's not welcome. Leo has apparently been confined in the Citadel as punishment for some unspecified wrong, 
but is left anyway and is here breaking curfew and attempting to blackmail Molander for his traitor talk, boasting of his expensive meal. While his impact is immediate, Leo is far from an out-and-out murdering villain, but might be considered simply an annoying bully. His blackmail wins him a cup of Arbor Gold, and Pate describes the malice in his drunken eyes as he first calls Alaris a lord's son, and then stoops to racism by calling his mother a monkey and speaking ill of the Dornish. He then rounds on Pate, claiming he doesn't wash, and calling him Spotted Pig Boy. Spotted Pate is a character from Westerosi legend, a good-hearted, empty-headed lout, or Pate thinks about how his own mother must have hated him to give him that name. Any good schoolyard bully knows how to torment their victims, and it seems with the pig boy that Leo knows how to push Pate's buttons. Alaris demands apologies, but Leo demands a drink in return. He's highly obnoxious, offensive, and quite nonchalant, all of which allow his character to build tension quickly. Molander, of strong physique, remember, threatens to tear his tongue out before Leo offers news of dragons and magic. And this is where the rising tension segues into a passage of intrigues and where we see that Leo, when not being a mocking, offensive idiot, can converse well with the group, despite not truly being one of them. Leo claims that the Mad King's daughter has hatched three dragons, that every sailor incoming from Karth speaks of them, that some say they've witnessed them, and finally, that Archmaester Marwyn believes them. Marwyn was first mentioned all the way back in A Game of Thrones, when Miri Mazdur claimed to have studied with him, but Armin and Rune cite Archmaester's Peristan and Ryam's belief that he's unsound. Dubbed the Mastiff by Leo, Pate believes this mocking name, for once, is rather accurate. In a passage from Pate's Thoughts, we learn that Marwyn resembles a Mastiff more than a Maester, keeps company with all manner of unusual people, sacrifices to queer gods, is involved in magic, dwells in the Undercity, and may have killed the man with his bare hands. He spent eight years in the East map-making and mingling with warlocks and shadowbinders, and has been known as the Mage since his return. A picture of an extremely unconventional maester is being painted, one who stands at odds with the skepticism and conservatism of the Citadel. One such disbeliever is Armin, who again dismisses Leo as he had Molander. Whereas the latter had no further evidence of anything untoward, Leo reveals that he has witnessed a glass candle burning brightly in Marwyn's chambers. You're wrong, said Leo. There's a glass candle burning in the mage's chambers. A hush fell over the torchlit terrace. Armin sighed and shook his head. Molander began to laugh. The Sphinx studied Leo with his big black eyes. Rune looked lost. Pate knew about the glass candles, though he had never seen one burn. They were the worst kept secret of the Citadel. It was said they had been brought to Old Town from Valyria a thousand years before the Doom. He had heard there were four. One was green, and three were black, and all were tall and twisted. What are these glass candles? asked Rune. Armin the Acolyte cleared his throat. The night before an Acolyte says his vows, he must stand a vigil in the vault. No lantern is permitted him, no torch, no lamp, no taper. 
only a candle of obsidian. He must spend the night in darkness, unless he can light that candle. Some will try, the foolish and the stubborn, those who have made a study of these so-called higher mysteries. Often they cut their fingers, for the ridges on the candles are said to be as sharp as razors. Then, with bloody hands, they must wait upon the dawn, brooding on their failure. Wiser men simply go to sleep, or spend their night in prayer, but every year there are always a few who must try. The news of the burning glass candle again brings about very different reactions from the different characters, from denial to befuddlement, until Armin provides some exposition about them. Maesters usually attempt to light them, only to learn a sharp lesson when they cut their fingers in the unsuccessful attempt. Yet if Marwyn has in fact lit one, it signified that something must have changed. Taking a cue from the rather astute Elleris, the reader might suspect that the birth of dragons has increased the magic in the world, just like the increase in magic in Karth, reported by Quaith and others, and the volume of wildfire reported by the pyromancers in King's Landing, this could have affected the previously dormant glass candles. With Marwyn having already been named a magician, it seems no coincidence that he was the one to succeed. Finally, paying close attention to the passage which tells us of the candle's razor-sharp edges and how they cut the fingers of the maesters as they attempt to light them, we suggest that it was blood magic which finally lit the candle. Fire and blood, typical of Valyrian sorcery, as Marwyn will tell Sam in his Old Town chapter. So, dragons, Marwyn's expertise, and blood magic could all be factors in the success of his attempt which, with the others up north and the dragons to the east, both closing in on a return to Westeros, helps to signify the dawn of a new magical era in the land, a time of ice and fire, if you will. We see that Armin, who essentially represents the intellectual stubbornness and denial of the Citadel, really struggles with the notion that the formerly impossible is now becoming possible. We're left to wonder what use all the great minds and academia of the Citadel will be to the end game of the story if they continue to ignore this shift. When Samwell arrives, a character who's not only seen an other, but slayed one, he faces a potentially frustrating stay in an institution which has too much brain and not enough wisdom, and is too stuck in the old ways. I know what I saw. The light was queer and bright, much brighter than any beeswax or tallow candle. It cast strange shadows, and the flame never flickered, not even when a draft blew through the open door behind me. Armin crossed his arms. Obsidian does not burn. Dragonglass, Pate said. The small folk call it dragonglass. Somehow, that seemed important. They do mused Alaris, the Sphinx. And if there are dragons in the world again... Dragons and darker things, said Leo. The gray sheep have closed their eyes, but the Mastiff sees the truth. Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes.
So, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. A profound passage that sends shivers down the spine as George begins to set up for the endgame of the series. One might wonder what those words are doing coming out of Lazy Leo's mouth. It certainly seems out of character. And the answer is that he's probably parroting something that he heard Marwyn say, given that he's been in and around the mage's chamber. Leo's dialogue quickly becomes more typical, debating Armin and the piss-tasting medicine classes, which, juxtaposed with Marwyn's magical thinking, represents the tunnel vision of the Citadel. Still, the group don't like the way Leo is talking, and rather than suffer him for a moment longer, they begin to disperse. However, Leo provides a final sting by saying that the others leaving will allow him the opportunity to, quote, make a woman out of Rosie, calling her his sweetmeat. This visibly angers and upsets Pate, which we assume is exactly why Leo is saying it. As the group begin to leave a little before dawn, Pate, not wanting to miss the alchemist, decides to stay in the unpleasant company of Leo, who taunts him about his duties with Walgrave and clearly wants to cause him no small amount of humiliation. Leo's taunting causes Pate to recall the days when Walgrave, short of his wits, called him Crescent which is a nice link to the A Clash of Kings prologue. When finally left alone, Leo ups the ante in his provocation of Pate, and knowing where to strike brings up Rosie again. Leo talks about her sleeping naked and that one day he must find out if she's worth a dragon, which he says would be a favor to Pate because it would bring her price down to a level that even pig boys could afford. Having been reminded by Alaris as he left that Leo had no coin for this presently, evidenced by his attempted blackmail for drinks, Pate must still be aware that this rich lord's son would have no problem acquiring a golden dragon in the future. This picks up on the pinch we mentioned very early on. Leo's spiteful desire for Rosie adds to the tension and the feeling that Pate is in a race against time to get what he wants. Leo, attempting to deny him this for no good reason, has now become well-defined in his role as an antagonist. Pate is so hurt and enraged, he wants to kill him, leading to a passage about Leo which explains both why it would be very foolish to try such a maneuver, and why he can be sure Leo could have Rosie very soon. Maesters leave their last names behind when they don their chains, and although these are essentially still students, last names are not given in this chapter. We know Leo is a highborn lord's son, but we couldn't yet be sure to which house he belonged. The short mystery is answered by Pate's reveal that he is Leo Tyrell, and his father Morin is lord commander of the City Watch of Old Town, one of several familial links that make Leo an innately important individual in the area. He's thus been trained at arms, so he's a bully from a major house that you might not want to stand up to, whether you could defeat him or not. In many ways, Leo stands in contrast to Pate, whose name denotes him as lowborn, both in its commonness and its lack of surname, highlighting a theme of classism that's woven through the series in many different ways. He's also a Westerlander, so he's an outsider, nowhere near as well-connected in Old Town as Lazy Leo Tyrell. Pate is fully aware that Leo is toying with him, yet he must be unsure of how far he would go with the torment. As he leaves at dawn, affected by the strong cider, he mutters to Leo, Leave her be, or I may kill you. Leo waves him away, unconcerned with the threat, deeming himself above duels with pig boys. 
With Pate leaving Leo behind, his threats are gone, but certainly not forgotten, as they continue to drive the urgency of our point of view meeting this alchemist. His walk across Old Town provides exposition of the morning fog, the slippery cobbles, and the plethora of septs. When the first shaft of sunlight broke through the clouds to the east, morning bells began to peal from the sailor's sept down by the water. The lord's sept joined a moment later, then the seven shrines from their gardens across the honeywine, and finally the starry sept that had been the seat of the high septon for a thousand years before Aegon landed at King's Landing. But as important as the faith of the Seven is to Old Town, there are red priests here as well, lighting their night fires to Valor, and Pate thinks of Stannis Baratheon and his recent conversion. With this more detailed description of Old Town, so close to the climax of the chapter, we have world-building being used as a sort of tension-breaking, kind of calm before the storm. As Pate recovers from a misstep on the cobbled streets, a voice says, Good morrow, Pate. Good morrow, Pate. The alchemist was standing over him. Pate rose. The third day. You said you would be at the Quill and Tankard. You were with your friends. It was not my wish to intrude upon your fellowship. The alchemist wore a hooded traveler's cloak, brown and nondescript. The rising sun was peeking over the rooftops behind his shoulder, so it was hard to make out the face beneath his hood. Have you decided what you are? Must he make me say it? I suppose I'm a thief. I thought you might be. So, Pate waiting with his friends was what had been stalling the alchemist all along. Pate admits that he's become a thief which, despite his decent character, is no surprise, given his feelings of guilt. Since he was also contemplating killing Leo, it seems the otherwise mild-mannered young man would do just about anything to protect Rosie, as he sees it, and you can sense his guilt again when he's discussing the theft with the alchemist. We learn that Pate had stolen a key of black iron from Walgrave's chambers. The iron-to-gold motif and the alchemist moniker now makes sense. There's an element of both irony and self-fulfilling prophecy with Pate having previously been accused of theft. He was innocent. It was Walgrave who had broken his own strongbox's lock, which had caused Gorman to wrongfully accuse Pate of theft, which in turn had likely made Pate afraid to apply for his Ravencraft link, given Gorman was the judge, all of which fed his frustration at being a linkless lackey at the Citadel, which was partially why he wanted to leave. And so Pate ultimately became a thief. It's an interesting string of events. Aside from the desire to fly away from his mundane life and his desperation to be Rosie's first and protect her, another motive for his wishful daydreams of absconding becomes apparent. Having stolen the Iron Key, a skeleton key for the Citadel, meant that he would need to leave and never return. In realizing this, Pate had also stolen Walgrave's silver coins. It says, a thief was a thief, so very much an in-for-a-penny, in-for-a-pound theme, which is leading to Pate's no-looking-back attitude. 
As the alchemist takes Pate off to a quieter place to make their exchange, the reader can sense danger, which isn't lost on Pate, but as we know, his story is driven by his need to obtain that dragon and get Rosie. There is no turning back for him now, and the reader can see that the alchemist is taking advantage of that fact. Finally, the pair are isolated and are ready for the exchange. Pate bites the coin to check its validity, yet he doesn't really know why he's doing that. He then tries to quiz the alchemist as to why he wants to infiltrate the citadel. What I want is none of your concern, comes the reply, increasing the enormous mystery surrounding this hooded character. Pate's internal monologue is screaming to go to Rosie and get this over with, but he can't help but ask another question. Show me your face. The alchemist obliges, which seems like a strange thing for him to acquiesce to, revealing a face with a hooked nose and a scar on the right cheek. Pate did not recognize him. I do not know you, nor I you. Who are you? A stranger, no one, truly. Oh. Pate had run out of words. He drew out the key and put it in the stranger's hand, feeling lightheaded, almost giddy. Rosie, he reminded himself. We're done, then. He was halfway down the alley when the cobblestones began to move beneath his feet. The stones are slick and wet, he thought. But that was not it. He could feel his heart hammering in his chest. What's happening, he said. His legs had turned to water. I don't understand. And never will, a voice said sadly. The cobblestones rushed up to kiss him. Pei tried to cry for help, but his voice was failing too. His last thought was of Rosie. As Pate hands over the key, he feels lightheaded and giddy, which might be the alcohol from earlier, or his excitement to finally seal this deal. But soon his heart is hammering and he collapses on the cobbles. Pate didn't understand that the alchemist had poisoned him, which really explains that giddiness, and the mysteries of the alchemist will be covered later on in this episode. But for now, this peculiar man ultimately replaced and surpassed Lazy Leo Tyrell as the antagonist of the chapter, preventing Pate from getting what he wanted when he was so very close by murdering him in cold blood. The fact that the alchemist tells Pate with sadness that he will never understand why he's been killed is evidence of some remorse and might suggest that the man believed he was acting for some currently unknowable greater good. Pate's wild daydreams thus go unfulfilled, ending in tragedy, which, as we mentioned, was telegraphed throughout the chapter. Pate's last thought was of Rosie, and given that we're reminded that it was she who introduced him to the alchemist, this prologue has many of the hallmarks of a tragic romance, although it's worth noting that we never really got Rosie's side of the love story. Themes of love, tragic romance, class, friendship, theft, and rumor combine with the devices of mystery, narrative intersection, and world-building to give us a chapter whose tensions are heightened by a bully and a mysterious assassin. It's an excellent entry into A Feast for Crows, and the mysteries presented will coalesce as the book plays out. Character identities and motives and the truth about dragons will all be important to our narrative, 
especially dragons. And in the next segment, we'll be talking about how the news of dragons is traveling and why it's so crucial to the story that it does. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One of the main functions of this chapter is to establish that the news of Daenerys Targaryen and her dragons has finally reached Westeros, has finally reached Old Town by sea, and therefore presumably has also reached other parts of Westeros, or is soon to reach other parts of Westeros. George R. R. Martin. So, we noted in the overview that the chapter opens with the word dragons, and according to George, this is quite deliberate. In his podcast from 2005, George stated that one of the main functions of this chapter is to establish that the news of Daenerys Targaryen and her dragons has finally reached Westeros, has finally reached Old Town by Sea, and therefore presumably has also reached other parts of Westeros, or is soon to reach other parts of Westeros. So that thread of the novels has always been separate until now, and now the threads are beginning to come together, and the dragons are going to loom up in greater importance. This is a great insight into George's process, and the quote speaks volumes about his efforts to wrangle the many threads of his story as they merge together. Using sailors as the principal method of news traveling from the Far East not only mirrors how news once traveled in the real world, but allows him to tie in details from past volumes in a completely believable way. And in fact, as feast and dance progress, we can outline a clear path of this news spreading. Armin the Acolyte actually enumerates many of the threads that have converged in Old Town for us. Dragons in Ashai, dragons in Karth, dragons in Marine, Dothraki dragons, dragons freeing slaves, each telling differs from the last. It's Melander who points out that, in spite of their differences, the tales have one thing in common. All speak of dragons and a beautiful young queen. And going by Armin's list, we can see that the news actually originates in A Clash of Kings when Danny and her fledgling dragons first emerged from the Red Waste with her tiny Kalasar, and the men and women of Essos became aware of the young dragon queen. In Karth, Danny visited the docks, seeking passage to Westeros. 
The passage is actually quite revealing of the sheer number of ship captains and sailors who would have seen her there and the places that they might have carried the story. Here it is. You'll require passage for a hundred Dothraki, all their horses, yourself and this knight and three dragons, said the captain from the great cog, ardent friend, before he walked away laughing. When she told the Lyceni on the trumpeteer that she was Daenerys Stormborn, Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, he gave her a dead-faced look and said, I, and I'm Lord Tywin Lannister and shit gold every night. The cargo master of the Mirish galley, Silken Spirit, opined that dragons were too dangerous at sea, where any stray breath of flame might set the rigging afire. The owner of Lord Pharaoh's belly would risk dragons, but not Dethraki. I'll have no such godless savages in my belly, I'll not. The two brothers who captained the sister ships Quicksilver and Greyhound seemed sympathetic and invited them into the cabin for a glass of Arbor Red. They were so courteous that Danny was hopeful for a time, but in the end the price they asked was far beyond her means and might have been beyond Zaros. Pinchbottom Petto and Slow-Eyed Maid were too small for her needs, Bravo was bound for the Jade Sea, and Magister Manolo scarce looked seaworthy. So Danny meets with at least ten ships captains in Carth, ships presumably bound for ports all over Essos and beyond. It's easy to see how the news of her appearance in Carth with three living dragons would spread from there. And in fact, we can trace one of those ships, the Slow-Eyed Maid, as far as Pentos and the Three Sisters of Westeros. In A Dance with Dragons, Davos Seaworth is drinking at a wine sink called the Lazy Eel in White Harbor when he hears sailors talking of dragons. They're a bit confused about the details until one man, a Bravosi oarsman, volunteers his tidbit of information. When we were down to Pentos, we moored beside a trader called the Slow-Eyed Maid, and I got to drinking with her captain steward. He told me a pretty tale about some slip of a girl who came aboard in Carth to try and book passage back to Westeros for her and three dragons. Silver hair she had, and purple eyes. I took her to the captain my own self, this steward swore to me, but he wasn't having none of that. There's more profit in cloves and saffron, he tells me, and spices won't set fire to your sails. It so happens that Davos had heard of this ship not long before in Sisterton from Lord Godric Burrell. Lord Godric happens to be in possession of saffron and other exotic spices, which he tells Davos came from a slow-eyed maid. She was making for Bravos, but a gale swept her into the bite, and she smashed up against some of my rocks. And so ended that chain of news, but the captain of the slow-eyed maid and his nine fellows weren't the only ship's captains Danny met in Carth. When she first arrived there, she had sent Sir Jorah to the docks, seeking news of Westeros. He returned with a man who captained a ship out of tall trees town in the Summer Islands, one Kuhuru Mo of the Cinnamon Wind. It was Kuhuru who brought her the news of Robert Baratheon's death, which had inflamed her desire to travel west. Kuhuru and the Cinnamon Wind had lately been in Old Town, Dorne, and Lys, and told her of the usurper's death and the chaos which had ensued. Though Danny initially wondered if he might be ready to return to Westeros, the Cinnamon Wind was bound for the Jade Sea from Carth. However, this wouldn't be the last we see of Kahoru Mo and his ship. After making their way round the Jade Sea, the Summer Islanders would find themselves in Bravos in a feast for crows. There, the ship's mate, Zondo Doru, would be on hand at the Happy Port to witness Sam's fight with Darian of the Night's Watch, which led to Sam being tossed in a canal and then rescued by Zondo. 
It was from the cinnamon wind that the rumors of dragons, which had previously been relayed to Maester Aemon by Darien, to the old man's great agitation, had originated. Sam's connection with Zondu would bring Aemon the information he sought and lead to the group of Aemon, Sam, Gilly, and the babe taking ship for Old Town aboard the Cinnamon Wind. Not only is Cinnamon Wind completing its trading circle with this voyage, but the news of Daenerys has also made its circuit in this time. Speaking of Bravos, Arya would also hear the news of dragons at the docks there, among other things. As Cat of the Canals, she would tell the kindly man that she had learned, quote, of strange and wondrous happenings from the wide, wet world beyond the isles of Bravos, wars and reigns of toads and dragons hatching. Throughout A Feast for Crows, this news of dragons comes up. Orain Waters tells Queen Cersei in King's Landing that, quote, there's been some queer talk heard along the docks of late, Sailors from the east, they speak of dragons. And later, Kyburn would elaborate. The slave revolt in Astapor has spread to Marine, it would seem. Sailors off a dozen ships speak of dragons. Euron Greyjoy would bring news of dragons to the king's moot of the Iron Islands, though he held the details close to his vest, saying only, there are three, and I know where to find them. While Arianne Martell in Dorne was aware of peculiar tidings from the east, making their way to Westeros from sailors. If the sailors could be believed, the East was seething with wonders and terrors, a slave revolt in Astapor, dragons in Carth, Grey Plague in Yeeti. Then in the Vale, when Sansa, as Elaine Stone, made her way to the Gates of the Moon and met with the newly returned Peter Baelish, he would tell her, The Merlin Kings returned to Gulltown, and Old Oswell had some tales to tell. Though he doesn't elaborate, he shortly after makes a peculiar comment to his daughter. What little peace and order the five kings left us will not long survive the three queens, I fear. Now this might seem an odd statement in light of what the characters appear to know about the state of the realm with its two oppositional queens in King's Landing, unless one factors in the clearly demonstrated flow of information from ships, sailors, and ports. Baelish, we believe, is aware of Daenerys and her dragons, and possibly of her intentions to travel to Westeros. Remember that she and Jorah had scoured the docks at Carth, seeking passage to Westeros, and that all of those ships would have carried that story far and wide. So, among the confusion of tales about Dothraki dragons, dragons in marine, and slave revolts, there is a nugget of truth about a Targaryen queen making her way to Westeros with three young dragons. And when Danny did leave Carth, on the ships Magister Illyrio had sent for her, she commanded that the three vessels be symbolically rechristened. The ships that bring me home must bear different names, Vagar, Baraxes, and Balerion. Paint the names on their hulls in golden letters three feet high, Arstan. I want every man who sees them to know the dragons are returned. In spite of Danny's detour to Slaver's Bay and current preoccupation with war and politics there, the symbolism of a Targaryen being born westward on three vessels bearing the names of the Conqueror's dragons would be lost on no one with even a cursory knowledge of Westerosi history. Throughout A Dance with Dragons, we get to see more news, mostly in the form of overblown rumors, making its way across Essos. Tyrion observes it in Volantis and hears stories from Astapor and Yunkai. But there's one last and seemingly unlikely location in Westeros that the news finally reaches. 
The Bravosi banker, Tycho Nestoris, arrives at Castle Black and treats with Jon Snow regarding a loan for the Night's Watch. John asks the Bravosi if he might have heard anything of Blackbird carrying Sam, Darian, Eamon, Gilly, and the child in Bravos. No, says the banker, though he wouldn't necessarily know of it, since Westerosi vessels dock in Ragman's Harbor, while the Iron Bank sails from the Purple Harbor. Hopefully they reach their destination, but, Tycho warns, the narrow sea is perilous this time of year, and of late there have been troubling reports of strange ships seen amongst the stepstones. John wonders if it's pirates, Salador San, perhaps. The Bravosi thinks not. The Lysine pirate? Some say he has returned to his old haunts, this is so, and Lord Redwine's war fleet creeps through the broken arm as well, on its way home, no doubt. But these men and their ships are well known to us. No, these other sails, from farther east, perhaps. One hears queer talk of dragons. The irony is that the ships in question likely belong to the Golden Company, bearing the young man known as Aegon Targaryen to the Stormlands with his guardian, John Connington. But now even Jon Snow at Castle Black has heard rumors of dragons, and in fact, he replies, would that we had one here, a dragon might warm things up a bit, much to the banker's dismay, who replies, you'll forgive me if I do not laugh. We Bravosi are descended from those who fled Valyria and the wrath of its dragon lords. We do not jape of dragons. And back in King's Landing, as a dance with dragons draws to a close, King Tommen's small council discusses John Connington and his, quote, feigned boy and the rumors about Daenerys. Kevin Lannister raises the issue. We have these tales coming from the east as well, a second Targaryen, and one whose blood no man can question, Daenerys Stormborn. With so much smoke drifting west, Surely there must be some fire burning in the east. Grand Maester Pycelle, who had served three Targaryen kings, seems to agree. Dragons. These same stories have reached Old Town. Too many to discount. A silver-haired queen with three dragons. And so, as A Dance with Dragons draws to a close, we have a callback to the prologue of A Feast for Crows. Throughout the two novels, intertwined as they are, George works diligently to draw the threads of his story ever closer together. The wheels are in motion. Dragons and the news of them are on the move, and Westeros awaits their arrival. Up next, we'll journey to Old Town for a look at a city first introduced to us in the Pate Prologue and what we learn about it and about its most famous institution, the Citadel, and the men who study there. Rivermen and seamen, smiths and singers, priests and princes, novices and acolytes of the citadel, the quill and tankard is known far and wide for our fearsomely strong cider, which you can enjoy in the common room or on the torchlit terrace overlooking the river Honeywine. Come to the quill and tankard for fellowship, for companionship, or to make new acquaintances. For 600 years our doors have not shut, and we expect they'll remain open for 600 more. The Quill and Tankard of Old Town, where a golden dragon will get you more than you bargained for. In his podcast about this prologue, George spoke at length about the importance of this chapter in establishing the new location of Old Town. 
Having never used this setting before, he had a lot of work to do in establishing not only a new city and making it unique from places like King's Landing and Winterfell, but also the Citadel, which remains off-page, and the Quill and Tankard, where the action takes place. Old Town is revealed as the setting relatively quickly, but the narrative spends several pages on developing the characters, their relationships with each other, and with others off-page. We slowly gain the insight that these people utterly unfamiliar to us as they are, are all novices or acolytes of the Citadel, and that they're spending some leisure time at a tavern, the Quill and Tankard. At the Quill and Tankard, the story progresses, and we begin to see names upon the page that we might have seen before. The maesters Marwyn, Cresson, and Gorman are all mentioned, and the careful reader might notice these connections with the main narrative. Cresson, the one-time maester of Dragonstone, is already dead, of course, but he played a significant role to the narrative as the viewpoint character for the Clash of Kings prologue, which introduced us to Dragonstone, Stannis Baratheon, Davos Seaworth, and Melisandre of Ashai. Marwyn and Gorman have also been mentioned before, and we expect they'll both be part of the narrative going forward, as we'll see. But we don't get to actually see Old Town, except in brief glimpses. The river Honeywine flowing past the terrace of the tavern, the beacon of the high tower shining through the fog, until Pate leaves the tavern, late in the chapter. Old Town, it says, is, quote, a veritable labyrinth of a city, all winds and crisscrossing alleys and narrow crookback streets. Old Town is also a city of bridges and islands, where the river prepares to meet the sea, and its population and economy reflect that. As a trading center, Old Town must be a very cosmopolitan place. And then Pate draws a strong contrast between Old Town and King's Landing in his thoughts. Pate had never seen King's Landing, but he knew it was a daub and wattle city, a sprawl of mud streets, thatched roofs, and wooden hovels. Old Town was built in stone, and all its streets were cobbled, down to the meanest alley. The city was never more beautiful than at the break of day. West of the Honeywine, the guild halls lined the bank like a row of palaces. Upriver, the domes and towers of the citadel rose on both sides of the river, connected by stone bridges crowded with halls and houses. Downstream, below the black marble walls and arched windows of the starry sept, the manses of the pious clustered like children gathered round the feet of an old dowager. The guild halls speak of a thriving mercantile trade, while the palaces and cobbled streets speak of wealth. The comparison to King's Landing highlights something about Old Town that we only learn for certain much later. It's old, perhaps not a shock given its name, while King's Landing is a relatively young city. In the World Book, we learn that, quote, the origins of Old Town are lost in the mists of time and clouded by legend. Septons claim it was founded by the Seven themselves, while others believe that dragons once roosted on the Battle Island at the mouth of the Honeywine until the High Towers put an end to them. Whatever the truth of the city's founding, it's a fact that people have lived in that location since the Dawn Age, making it far more ancient than any other city in Westeros, and certainly grander and more refined than the new capital on the East Coast. And then there's the High Tower, unknown to us until this point, simply the name of a house from the Reach with little more to go on. The characters from the house stand out as people of importance, though. Lord Commander Gerald Hightower of the King's Guard, a former King's Hand, Sir Otto Hightower, a one-time Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Runcel Hightower, 
Jorah Mormont's former wife, Lynesse. But here we get our first description, not only of their home city, but of their castle, if it can be called that. Beyond, where the honey wine widened into whispering sound, rose the high tower, its beacon fires bright against the dawn. From where it stood atop the bluffs of Battle Island, its shadow cut the city like a sword. Those born and raised in Old Town could tell the time of day by where that shadow fell. Some claimed a man could see all the way to the wall from the top. For all that the Citadel is likely the most important institution in the city, followed by the faith of the Seven and their Septs, Old Town literally lies in the shadow of the High Tower. Natives use it as a sort of gigantic sundial. Lord Leighton, its current lord, is said to have not descended from his tower in a decade, and we're left with a decided sense of intrigue. Can one truly see the wall from the top of that tower? We have an idea about that that we'll discuss shortly. The High Tower, standing on Battle Island, is impossibly ancient, its origins the most debated topic in the history of Old Town. No one knows what battle the name of the island refers to, and the foundation of the tower itself is a giant square fortress formed of a fused black stone that is very similar to that seen in numerous other places, notably the Black Wall of Old Volantis, the Valyrian Dragon Roads, Dragonstone, and the Five Forts of Eastern Essos. Since the walls lack the fanciful designs typical of Valyrian construction, as seen on Dragonstone, and there's no other evidence of Valyrian habitation on Battle Isle. Many maesters dismiss this apparent connection in favor of other theories, such as a possible connection to the maze makers of Lorath, suggested by the labyrinthine passages inside the fortress, or even a link to the sea stone chair and the legendary deep ones, suggested by a similarity in the stones found in each. Most in-universe admit that this mystery will never be solved, but we can't help but notice the passing reference to dragons living on Battle Island, which could indicate a Valyrian presence, to glass candles making their way to Old Town from Valyria a thousand years before the Doom, and to the peculiar legend that the Lord of the High Tower can see hundreds or thousands of miles from the top of his tower, which we'll suggest later may actually be another link to Old Valyria. As for the tower itself, it was built in stages following the occupation of Battle Island by the High Towers, who for many years were counted kings of Old Town before finally being brought into the reach by a pair of marriage alliances with House Gardner. Legend connects Bran the Builder to the construction of their fifth tower, the first to be built of stone and to rear up 200 feet above the harbor. In the present day, the high tower is even taller than the wall, so more than 700 feet tall or greater than 70 stories, to put it in our real-world perspective, making it the tallest man-made structure in Westeros. When we spoke about Lomas Longstrider's Wonders Made by Man, we pointed out that this is likely on that list, though it's never explicitly stated, and at over 70 stories tall, in a world without elevators, Perhaps it's really no surprise that Lord Leighton hasn't descended in years. Now, sticking with our new locations, let's consider what we learn about the Citadel itself. It's not far from the Quill and Tankard, though the maze-like streets of the city make it difficult to reach quickly. Of the physical location, what we learn in this chapter is that its gates are flanked by a pair of green marble sphinxes with eyes of black onyx. 
Later in the same book, when Sam Tarley arrives in Old Town, he observes that one has a man's face and one a woman's. Sam's journey to the Seneschal's court of the Citadel from the docks reinforces the labyrinthine streets and damp cobblestones mentioned in Pate's chapter and gives us a better sense of the scale of the institution, which seems like it winds through the city and along the shores and islands of the Honeywine like a vine with each specialty or office having its own area. And nearby, as we said, through a maze of cobbled streets, sits the quill and tankard, occupying a small island in the Honeywine, renowned for its fearsomely strong cider. Here's the description from the chapter. The quill and tankard never closed. For 600 years it had been standing on its island in the Honeywine, and never once had its doors been shut to trade. Though the tall timbered building leaned toward the south the way novices sometimes leaned after a tankard, Pate expected that the inn would go on standing for another 600 years, selling wine and ale and fearsomely strong cider to rivermen and seamen, smiths and singers, priests and princes, and the novices and acolytes of the citadel. Later in A Feast for Crows, as Sam prepares to leave the wall for the journey south, Maester Eamon reminisces about Old Town. It was always warm in Old Town. There is an inn on an island in the Honeywine, where I used to go when I was a young novice. It will be pleasant to sit there once again, sipping cider. And again later, in Bravos, he mentions it once more, this time with a bit more detail. Old Town, Maester Eamon wheezed. Yes, I dreamt of Old Town, Sam. I was young again, and my brother Egg was with me, with that big knight he served. We were drinking in the old inn where they make the fearsomely strong cider. So, some ninety years previously, at the age of twelve or so, young Eamon had been joined at the Quill and Tankard by his brother Aegon and Duncan the Tall on their journey back to the Reach from Dorne. Perhaps it was in that very common room that Eamon had measured Dunk and found him to be an inch shy of seven feet. In the present, at least, the Quill and Tankard has a bit of the brothel about it. Though it's famed for its cider, it's also home to a, quote, serving wench called Emma, who entertains men upstairs, and whose daughter Rosie is a freshly flowered maid and the object of Pate's affection. Rosie's maidenhead is up for sale by her mother for the princely price of a gold dragon. She's never seen on Pate, but we get a detailed description of her in Pate's thoughts, and we know it was she who introduced him to the alchemist. It's easy to see how a stranger could have arrived in Old Town seeking a way to infiltrate the citadel and observed that the quill was a favorite watering hole of alkalites and novices from that institution. From there, it would be quite simple for a practice deceiver to manipulate a meeting with a youngster whom he had identified as a likely candidate for his stratagem. And when we see the quill in Tankard, there are indeed a number of young men from the citadel all acolytes and novices who clearly spend much of their free time there. Armin the acolyte is possessed of four links, lead, copper, tin, and pewter, which it had taken him four years to earn. He is a slightly superior lad who has little interest in tales of dragons and has supreme confidence that the other boys are simply falling for a series of tall tales. His intelligence and demeanor would make him an unlikely candidate for the alchemist, however. Molander is the son of a knight who perished at Blackwater. No mention is made of what side he fought with, but we can guess it might have been Stannis, since he seems ready enough to embrace a Targaryen queen over the current regime. 
Mollander has a club foot and no links, spending most of his time at the quill drinking since his father's death. With his drinking and disillusion, Mollander might have been an option for the alchemist to approach, and considering that George said he once wrote a version of this narrative from Mollander's point of view, perhaps he once thought so as well. Rune, on the other hand, is an earnest young boy two years shy of manhood. Also linkless, Rune seems to enjoy stories and is fascinated by the rumors of dragons. Rune might have been deemed too young and without the necessary knowledge or connections at the Citadel as he was likely relatively new there. Alaris, the Sphinx, is a, quote, comely lad who's forged three links in one year. He's slender, graceful, and attractive, and has more than a little air of mystery about him. In fact, we'll be getting into more detail about Alaris in the next section, so stay tuned for that. Alaris, with his air of mystery and obvious noble birth and shrewdness, would probably be an unlikely candidate as well, leaving from this group only Pate. Pate is 18, five years at the Citadel, unchained and unhappy with his life. His passion for Rosie is obvious, and his position as assistant to Archmaester Walgrave, the nominal seneschal of the Citadel, would be well known. So too would be Walgrave's increasing senility, making Pate the perfect mark for the alchemist's plot. Motivated by his disaffection and his love of Rosie, and in an excellent position to obtain what the alchemist needed with minimal risk of being found out. Other than this core group, we also meet Leo Tyrell. His father is Morin Martell, commander of the City Watch of Old Town. Morin is the younger brother of the late Lord Luther Tyrell, making Leo Mace Tyrell's cousin. Leo isn't the only Tyrell at the Citadel. Maester Gorman, who's also mentioned in this chapter, is another of Luther's brother and thus is Leo's uncle, while Leo's own nephew Medwick is already accounted a full maester. Another Tyrell, Mace's cousin Norman, who must also be a close relation of Leo's, is the maester at Black Crown, the seat of House Bulwer, whose lady is yet another Tyrell. The well-connected Leo isn't even the only Leo Tyrell in his family, as his father's cousin Victor also has a son called Leo, who's the father of Alla, one of Marjorie's maids-in-waiting at King's Landing. What distinguishes this Leo Tyrell, apparently, is his laziness. For reasons known only to himself, and perhaps his family, Leo remains at the Citadel, a novice who has the curious privilege of retaining his family name and colors while lording his wealth, influence, and superior training at arms over the other novices. We don't know why he's called Lazy Leo, but he seems to have forged no links, nor do we learn why he had been confined to the Citadel. The others seem to loathe him, though Armin calls him my lord with an anxiously deferential manner, and yet he seeks out their company. In his podcast, George characterized Leo as an important character, perhaps because he reappears later in the book. When we see him in Sam's Old Town point of view, he's gazing into a candle outside of Marwyn's chambers. Had he been listening at the door? Did he continue to do so after Marwyn invited Sam and Alaris, but not Leo, inside? If so, he'd have heard Marwyn's plans to go to Slaver's Bay and Sam's entire story about Aemon, Daenerys, and the prophecy. So we wonder, could Leo be spying for his family, possibly to aid the ascension of his Uncle Gorman, or perhaps to keep an eye on certain people? He's introduced, appearing out of nowhere, threatening Molander and calling him a traitor on account of his silly toast to Daenerys. 
He claims to have knowledge of Marwyn's beliefs about Daenerys and about the glass candle in his chamber. There follows some important exposition about glass candles, which had been mentioned briefly by Zarozon Doxos to Daenerys and Karth, but with no further explanation of what they were or why they were significant. Leo then repeats something that he might have heard from Marwyn. The gray sheep have closed their eyes, but the mastiff sees the truth. Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. And then he asks for a drink, as if in payment for his information. We can't rule out that perhaps Leo is somehow in Marwyn's confidence, as Alaris seems to be, but the question would become why Marwyn would trust this arrogant and egotistical scion of House Tyrell, who Sam Tarley remembers as a frightening bully and is so well-connected to the upper echelons of Old Town politics. It seems like there's some undercurrent here, and the most likely possibilities would seem to be that either Marwyn is using Leo with or without his awareness, or Leo is spying on Marwyn. As for his uncle Gorman, Varys tells Tyrion in A Storm of Swords that after Pycelle had been removed by Tyrion, quote, the conclave accepted the fact of Pycelle's dismissal and set about choosing his successor. After giving due consideration to Maester Turquin, the Cordwainer's son, and Maester Eric, the Hedge Knight's bastard, and thereby demonstrating to their own satisfaction that ability counts for more than birth in their order, the conclave was on the verge of sending us Maester Gorman, a Tyrell of Highgarden. Varys continues, When I told your father, he acted at once, by which he meant the restoration of Pycelle. Unsurprised, Tyrion commented, Better a Lannister toad than a Tyrell toad, no? Incidentally, Varys's knowledge of these goings-on in Old Town seems to bear out the truth of Armin's warning to Molander about his proposed toast to Daenerys. The spider has ears everywhere. So, with the deaths of Pycelle and Kevin Lannister at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and the hand Mace Tyrell seemingly poised to be in charge, many fans think that Gorman Tyrell might be chosen once again and will soon be heading to King's Landing as the new Grand Maester to help fill out the all-Tyrell small council that Mace seems to be building. For the record, he would only have to replace the elderly Harris Swift with his own uncle Garth the Gross as Master of Coin once Tywin's own choice for that office, and neutralize Kyburn and Sir Jaime to achieve this. Gorman, as it happens, is also the maester who presides over the study of ravenry at the Citadel in the increasingly senile and infirm Archmaester Walgrave's place. He was the one who had once accused Pate of theft and of breaking the lock on the very box in which he found the iron key the alchemist desired. Gorman's position led to Pate's reluctance to apply for his link of black iron, in spite of the fact that as Walgrave's assistant, he had surely learned enough of Ravencraft to earn it. Gorman, in Pate's eyes, is someone to be frightened of. Tywin Lannister found him someone to be wary of, and if he's counted amongst the grey sheep that Marwyn scorns and warns Sam about, he's almost certainly not an impartial actor. Walgrave, on the other hand, is now so old and senile that he almost certainly is impartial, at least by default. In the manner of finding a task for someone whose purpose has become questionable, Pate had been sent to assist Walgrave. The old maester, who once knew Cresson and sometimes gets Pate confused with a young Cresson, 
had drawn the lot as Seneschal of the Citadel in that year. Due to his, quote, wandering wits, Walgrave's seat was taken by Maester Theobald instead, and Walgrave remained mostly in the West Tower of the Ravenry on the Isle of Ravens. The Ravenry, incidentally, is also where Sam will find Marwyn many months later. Marwyn's chamber is in the North Tower, below the Black Rookery, while Walgrave favored the White Ravens. Marwyn, whose ring rod and mask are of Valyrian steel, signifying the higher mysteries, a link achieved by only one in a hundred maesters, was first mentioned in a Daenerys point of view in A Game of Thrones by Miri Mazdor. Miri claimed that when she was young, she had gone to a shy and learned many healing arts, including something of anatomy from a maester of the Citadel. A maester from the Sunset Lands opened a body for me and showed me all the secrets that hide beneath the skin. Marwyn, he named himself. From the sea, beyond the sea, the Seven Lands, he said, Sunset Lands, where men are iron and dragons rule. He taught me this speech. Her story is borne out at last in this chapter, with the information that Marwyn had spent eight years in the East studying, among other things, with Shadowbinders, which more or less places him in a shy, as Miri had said. In A Storm of Swords, he's mentioned again, this time by Kyburn, when Jamie asks if he believes in ghosts. Once at the Citadel, I came into an empty room and saw an empty chair, Yet I knew a woman had been there only a moment before. The cushion was dented where she'd sat, the cloth was still warm, and her scent lingered in the air. If we leave our smells behind us when we leave a room, surely something of our souls must remain when we leave this life. The archmaesters did not like my thinking, though. Well, Marwyn did, but he was the only one. If Marwyn found common ground with Kyburn whom the Citadel had removed for his particular brand of heresy, that's certainly evidence that his thinking can lean towards being dangerously heretical, if not unsound, as Archmaesters Periston and Ryan have declared. As the Archmaester presiding over the higher mysteries, he seems to favor occult knowledge and perhaps even a bit of magical thinking. He's also in possession of a glass candle, as we mentioned, his own interest in Arcana may have led him to discover the secret of lighting it, while the presence of dragons may have facilitated his studies. We can assume that he, like the Shadowbinder Quaith, would be familiar with the lore that the return of dragons has led to the return of certain types of magic to the world. And speaking of glass candles, we want to briefly return to that peculiar legend that one can see the wall from the top of the high tower. Since there are suggested links between the High Tower and Old Valyria, with the odd stone that forms its foundation and the rumors of dragons on Battle Island, we wonder if perhaps at one time there was a glass candle at the top of the tower. Pate references a well-known legend that a thousand years before the doom, four glass candles had been brought to Old Town from Valyria. If one of these, or perhaps some other one, had ended up in the hands of House Hightower, then perhaps there's an explanation for the rumor that the Lord of the Hightower could see as far as the wall from atop his tower. Marwyn tells Sam of the properties of burning obsidian, including the sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas, and deserts with one of these glass candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions and speak to one another, half a world apart, seated before their candles. 
Of course, the rumor could simply be hyperbole related to the immense height of the tower, but given the persistent rumors that the high towers have dabbled in sorcery and necromancy over the years, and the air of mystery that seems to surround the current lord, the house having once possessed and used a powerful magical object like a glass candle seems like a reasonable idea, if one that only time will tell the truth of. When Sam Tarley meets Marwyn, he repeats the story he told Alaris in the Seneschal's court, where it says, He spoke awkwardly of King Stannis and Melisandre of Ashai, intending to stop at that, but one thing led to another, and he found himself speaking of Mance Raider and his wildlings, king's blood and dragons, and before he knew what was happening, all the rest came spilling out, the whites at the fist of the first men, the other on his dead horse, the murder of the old bear at Craster's Keep, Gilly in their flight, White Tree and Small Paul, Cold Hands and the Ravens, John becoming Lord Commander, the Blackbird, Darian, Bravos, the dragon Sondo, saw in Karth, the cinnamon wind, and all that Maester Aemon whispered toward the end. He held back only the secrets that he was sworn to keep about Bran Stark and his companions, and the babes Jon Snow had swapped. Daenerys is the only hope, he concluded. Aemon said the Citadel must send her a maester at once to bring her home to Westeros before it is too late. The mage makes an on-the-spot decision to leave Old Town and journey to Slaver's Bay and Daenerys. Of interest, it wasn't only Marwyn and Alaris who heard this tale, but a pale youth calling himself Pate, who was in the room with them, and more on that shortly, and, quite possibly, Leo Tyrell, listening at the door. Marwyn's abrupt departure from Old Town is one of the mysteries of A Feast for Crows, he clearly wants to reach Danny before others do, perhaps even others of his own order. But are there other operators with whom he might be racing? And what is Marwyn's interest in Daenerys Targaryen and her dragons? Is it mere professional curiosity or perhaps something more? In our prophecy episode, we talked about George's promise that by the end of the story, we would know everything there is to know about Robert's rebellion. In order to learn, in story, about the events that took place on Dragonstone, leaving up to Stannis' arrival and the de facto end of the rebellion, we'd need to have an eyewitness. Unfortunately, the entire household of Dragonstone seems to have either been killed or fled, but it occurred to us that there was no mention of a maester there. Cresson was the maester at Dragonstone during Stannis' tenure, but he came from Storm's End with Stannis. So who was the maester at Dragonstone while the Targaryens were there? Who would have known much about Rhaella's plans and communications with the Loyalists, and who would also have attended Daenerys' birth? This maester, who must have existed, is never mentioned, but could offer a lot of exposition on the events that occurred there if he was still living. And so we wondered if perhaps Marwyn is that maester, and if his interest in Arcana his apparent abrupt departure to the east to spend eight years studying might be related to his time with the Targaryens and their prophecies. This might go a long way towards explaining his need to get to Slaver's Bay, and from a narrative perspective, might soon put Danny in touch with someone who could speak to her about her past and her homeland, helping her to fill in the gaps, in much the same way as first Jorah and then Barristan had done. Check out our Prophecy episode for more details on that idea, and as for the first question, who else might be racing to find Daenerys and her dragons, which Marwyn may be aware of through his glass candle, we know that Victarion Greyjoy is moving that way, for starters, 
And then there's the Dornish plot to make an alliance with her to gain their vengeance, which we learn more about in A Dance with Dragons, but was well underway during Marwyn's meeting with Sam. And lastly, there's the more obscure possibility that an institution from Bravos is seeking to prevent the rise of a new generation of dragon lords. Recall the words of the Bravosi banker Tycho Nestoris to Jon Snow at the Wall. We Bravosi are descended from those who fled Valyria and the wrath of its dragon lords. We do not jape of dragons. So many fans wonder if the Bravosi and the Faceless Men have a secret agenda to destroy the dragons. What's very curious about these threads is those two other people in the room with Sam and Marwyn when Sam tells his story and Marwyn abruptly departs. Pate, whom the reader might have thought was dead after the prologue, and Alaris are the two characters around whom the central mysteries of the prologue chapter turn. And so in our next segment, we'll explore just who those two characters are and what they might represent to the narrative. A sphinx is a bit of this, a bit of that. A human face, the body of a lion, the wings of a hawk. Alaris was the same. His father was a Dornishman, his mother a black-skinned summer islander. His own skin was dark as teak, and like the green marble sphinxes that flanked the citadel's main gate, Alaris had eyes of onyx. Among the solutions to the mysteries of A Song of Ice and Fire, some are labeled easy by the fandom and sometimes too easy by those seeking for more complex explanations. And one of those is the common theory to the mystery of who the Citadel's acolyte Alaris really is. This character's identity is brought into question when Leo Tyrell calls him a lord's son in the prologue, which he denies. By having a character question his own origins, George is inviting the reader to do the same. So let's consider all the clues and hints of this mystery to see if they align with the aforementioned fandom's favorite answer. First of all, the chapter opens to show Alaris shooting his bow. Alaris drew his bowstring back to his ear, turning gracefully to follow the target in flight. He loosed his shaft just as the apple began to fall. So we see here Alaris is more than competent with his bow and arrow. This notion is highlighted and taken a step further when Pate remembers that he had tried to bend it once and failed. The Sphinx looks slight, but there's strength in those slim arms. So Alaris seems to have some specialized training to become so well acquainted with this difficult weapon that he fires it with ease and accuracy. This could be completely innocent, perhaps related to his mother's origins in the Summer Islands, But later in the chapter, we get this about Leo Tyrell. Leo had been trained to arms and was known to be deadly with Bravo's blade and dagger. Being skilled with weapons is the first of several points of comparison with Leo Tyrell that we see in the chapter. The point here is that Leo gained his skills as part of his privileged highborn upbringing. He had the leisure time and the instruction to refine his combat skills, and so we as readers might wonder where Alaris acquired his own skill with the bow. Leo certainly does, and perhaps these highborn folk can smell their own. Next, and along similar lines, we learn that Alaris has excelled at the Citadel itself. It says Alaris would make a maester. He had only been at the Citadel for a year, and yet already he had forged three links of his maester's chain. 
By point of comparison, Armin's forelings had each taken him a year to earn, and Pate had gained none in five years, so it seems that Alaris must be extremely smart and is working quickly and with efficiency in the intellectually demanding arena of the Citadel. So if advanced Bowman's skills might signify highborn training, could Alaris's academic excellence and thirst for knowledge signify a highborn education? Now, Alaris claims that his father was a Dornishman, his mother a black-skinned Summer Islander. At this point in the story, that information might not help us directly just yet, although it's worth remembering that a high-born Dornishman has studied at the Citadel before. In A Storm of Swords, Tyrion says this, He had studied at the Citadel, going so far as to forge six links of a maester's chain before he grew bored. And the Dornishman, of course, was Oberyn Martell. Being Dornish, it might not surprise anyone that Alaris is aware of Targaryen matters, with Princess Elia having been married to Prince Rhaegar. However, it's the depth of Alaris's knowledge and his sharpness on the subject which might be suspicious. When Armin and Rune both make mistakes in their discussion about the current state of House Targaryen, it's Alaris who interjects, No, it was Prince Rhaegar's young son Aegon whose head was dashed against the wall by the Lion of Lannister's brave men. We speak of Rhaegar's sister, born on Dragonstone before its fall, the one they called Daenerys. So Alaris demonstrates bits of knowledge off the cuff that you'd expect maybe a high-born Dornishman to be extremely familiar with. And notice the cutting sarcasm when he calls the Lannister child killers brave men. This thinly-veiled contempt for Lannisters, as well as doses of sarcasm, reminds us once more of Oberyn Martell, who enters the story demonstrating both. Ilaria, lords and ladies, sirs, see how well King Joffrey loves us. His grace has been so kind as to send his own Uncle Imp to bring us to his court. And further into the chapter, George begins to drop clear hints that Alaris is not what he seems. First it says, The Sphinx was always smiling, as if he knew some secret jape. Perhaps the real secret is in regard to his identity, the jape being that he is successfully fooling everyone around him, to some extent at least. Then there's more fuel to the notion that this Dornishman is from a highborn family. Leo noted that he took all his silver when he left, indicating that Alaris might be well-moneyed, but only after quaffing some expensive wine. It says, Alaris preferred the strange sweet wines of his mother's country. Even in Old Town, such wines did not come cheap. Later, Leo tells of how, while the other boys had dined on cheap mutton, he himself had eaten suckling pig and plum sauce stuffed with chestnuts and white truffles. So, highborn Leo and Alaris both have expensive tastes, yet another point of comparison, which leads Leo to publicly conclude that a lord's son should be open-handed, Alaris, of course, denies being a lord's son, and he might not be lying here, as he could very well be a lord's daughter instead. The question of Alaris being a lord's son is at first perplexing. We've demonstrated a link to Oberyn Martell, yet in A Storm of Swords we had this about Oberyn. It was said that he bedded men and women both and had begotten bastard girls all over Dorne, the Sand Snakes men called his daughters. So far as Tyrion had heard, Prince Oberyn had never fathered a son. In the chapter, we're told that females found Alaris attractive. It says, All the serving wenches doted on him. Even Rosie would sometimes touch him on the arm when she brought him wine, and Pate had to gnash his teeth and pretend not to see. 
However, this might be a sleight of hand by George, for the prevailing fandom theory is that Alaris is the daughter of Oberyn Martell and a Summer Islander trader. In this case, Alaris never directly lied about anything other than her gender, and those links to Oberyn would make perfect sense. Females are not permitted at the Citadel, and Alaris might have good reason to hide her reasons for being there, giving two good motives for the subterfuge. And for what it's worth, a female masquerading as a man is hardly a new concept in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's Arya acting as Ari, the tale of brave Danny Flint, and even Lyanna Stark's probable ruse as the Knight of the Laughing Tree. Later in A Feast for Crows, we learn more about Oberyn's bastard daughters, the Sand Snakes. As they're rounded up by Prince Doran to prevent them fomenting a rebellion from within following their father's death, there's mention of a Sand Snake absent from Dorne, a 20-year-old named Sorella. Doran Martell orders, Unless she returns to Dorne, there's naught I can do about Sorella, save pray that she shows more sense than her sisters. Leave her to her... game. Gather up the others. We learn that Sorella once visited the abandoned Holdfast Shandystone with her father, Tyene, and Arianne. Interested in the history of the ruins, Sorella turned over rocks and brushed sand off its mosaics. This is evidence of her curiosity and scientific mind. We also learn that she was, quote, forever pushing in where she didn't belong, in keeping with the boldness she demonstrates at the Citadel. Last but not least is the name Alaris. Flip it backwards, and you get Sorella. This piece of evidence is perhaps the strongest of all, but we chose to present it last here, we wanted to show what the mystery looks like when you're reading left to right and suggest that contrary to the belief that this is a simple mystery solved by noticing this Samordnil app, which is a word that indicates spelling a word backwards to make an entirely new word, there's in fact a depth to this puzzle with clever clues and hints. Bearing in mind that Sorella isn't even mentioned until much later in the book, this might demonstrate the multi-stage reveal that George's editor, Anne Grohl, has mentioned which in this case begins in the prologue as being quite difficult, and with the final clue, in this case a clever bit of wordplay, being the evidence that George hits us over the head with later on. But that doesn't mean this was a simple mystery. Hopefully we've shown there was plenty of thought and subtlety applied by the author through the prologue. But, assuming Alaris is indeed Sorella, what is her purpose in infiltrating the Citadel? Is the game Doran refers to simply a lark fueled by a young woman's thirst for knowledge and perhaps a desire to emulate her father? Or could it be something more? It's noted that Alaris has been at the Citadel for about a year, which puts her arrival more or less in line with the events of the Clash of Kings prologue, Crescent's death, the comet, and the White Ravens announcing the change of season. Her cousin Quentin's arrival in Volantis also occurred around this time, and the news of Ned Stark's death and the opening salvos of the War of the Five Kings would have been making its way to Dorne about this time as well. Perhaps most intriguingly, the birth of the dragons also occurred in that time frame. While it's difficult to imagine how anyone in Dorne could have gained intelligence about the dragons at that point, it's not impossible that this rising tide of events had led to Oberyn or Doran wanting a source of information within the Citadel itself. When Doran refers to Sorella's game, he pauses, perhaps signifying that he knows more than he's letting on about her objective there. In terms of understanding the seriousness of what she hopes to accomplish, it's also worth noting a couple of other significant events on the timeline. 
The Pate prologue occurs shortly after Oberyn's death and the Sand Snake's imprisonment at Sunspear. And it's possible that Sorella is unaware of these events during that chapter, but Sam's Old Town chapter occurs many months later. She has to know by then, and it's exceedingly difficult to imagine a Sand Snake, even one with, quote, more sense than her sister's, sitting idly by playing a game in the wake of these events. So we think that Sorella has a distinct purpose in being at the Citadel, though what exactly that is has yet to be revealed. Assuming she went at her father's instruction, her presence in Old Town may have been linked to Quentin's voyage to Slaver's Bay. Miserius' death would likely have been known by the time she arrived at the Citadel, and the plan would have evolved from the original alliance between Arianne and Viserys, agreed upon by Sir Willem Darry and Prince Oberyn in the past, to the new proposed alliance between Quentin and Danny. Oberyn was still very much alive at this point, and would have been when Quentin left Dorne as well. It's not hard to imagine him wanting eyes in the Citadel as the center of Westerosi learning and, as he would no doubt be aware, also a center for political intrigue and a place that news of the world would filter to very quickly. So as we said, only time will reveal the true purpose of Sorella's game, but hopefully having a perspective on the sequence of events has allowed us to make informed speculation. As for the man known to us through Pate's point of view as the alchemist, his interaction with Pate really drives the narrative and direction of the chapter. As events unfold at the end of the prologue, the reader's mind is swimming with questions about him. Who is he? How did he kill Pate? And what does he want at the Citadel? Like any self-respecting alchemist, this mysterious character wants to turn iron into gold, or should I say, exchange an iron skeleton key for a golden dragon, while exploiting the boy's love of Rosie. As we've suggested, in order to bargain with Pate, the alchemist must have known of this love, that it was a weakness in him, and the cause of some desperation. He must have also known Pate's status at the Citadel, in that he would have access to the key. All of this suggests that the alchemist had been observing Pate closely, which he was throughout the prologue without being detected, as evidenced by the man's assertion that he didn't approach Pate at the inn while his friends were there. When the pair find a quiet place to carry out their exchange, Pate asks to see the alchemist's face. Here's the description. He was just a man, and his face was just a face. A young man's face, ordinary, with full cheeks and the shadow of a beard. A scar showed faintly on his right cheek. He had a hooked nose and a mat of dense black hair that curled tightly around his ears. And this description might have triggered a sense of deja vu for some readers, because we've seen it somewhere before. All the way back in Arya 9 of A Clash of Kings, the young girl is tempted to follow the mysterious Jekin Higar to Bravos. He reveals himself to be an assassin of the faceless men when he does this in front of Arya. Jekin passed a hand down his face from forehead to chin, and where it went, he changed. His cheeks grew fuller, his eyes closer, his nose hooked, a scar appeared on his right cheek where no scar had been before, and when he shook his head, his long straight hair, half red and half white, dissolved away to reveal a cap of tight black curls. So the description of Jackin's new face here is very similar to the alchemist's, almost identical in fact, full cheeks, hooked nose, scar on the right cheek, 
and tightly curled black hair. It seems like very strong evidence that Jacken is the alchemist, and if you need any further proof. A few lines later, Pate asks who he is. The reply? A stranger. No one. Later on in Feast, we get to see the Faceless Man's Academy at the House of Black and White, where Arya is in training to shed her sense of identity for good and become no one. So, in conclusion, the alchemist being Jacket seems like a safe bet. The next related mystery is how did Jacken the alchemist kill Pate? On first read-through, the sequence is confusing and again mysterious. Here's the text of the boy dying. He was halfway down the alley when the cobblestones began to move beneath his feet. The stones are slick and wet, he thought, but that was not it. He could feel his heart hammering in his chest. What's happening, he said. His legs had turned to water. I don't understand. And never will, a voice said sadly. There's a small clue to what's happening when Pate hands over the iron key. It says he was feeling lightheaded, almost giddy. And while this might appear to be due to the elation of the promise of Rosie's bed, in hindsight, it's the first sign that Pate has been poisoned. And like the meaning of no one we discussed previously, we again need to read forward to Arya's Bravos chapters in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons for more satisfying confirmation. Arya is tasked with assassinating a corrupt insurance salesman in Bravos. She observes him closely and unnoticed, and observes this about his behavior when he is given a gold coin. He never looked at the coins. Instead, he bit them, always on the left side of his mouth where he still had all his teeth. From time to time, he'd spin one on the table and listen to the sound it made when it came clattering to a stop. Arya, having been trained in the use of poisons by the waif, goes on to kill the man by slipping a poisoned coin into a purse which is on its way to her victim. When the man bit the coin, his heart would give out. It seems in hindsight that the alchemist used the same method and poison on Pate, remembering the description of the boy's hammering heart. Finally, there's the mystery of motive. What exactly does Jackin want with the Citadel Key? Well, the notion that he wants to infiltrate the Citadel seems to be confirmed by the very last words of A Feast for Crows. In the final chapter of the book, Samuel Tarley comes to the Citadel and meets Alaris, Leo, and Pate. The latter introduces himself with this line, I'm Pate, the other said, like the pig boy. So it's quite a revelation that the alchemist seems to have taken Pate's face and provides a circular feel to the novel, given we both begin and end on Pate. The like-the-pig-boy line really reminds us that this isn't Pate. In the prologue, he despises being called pig-boy by Leo and wonders if his mother must have hated him to have named him as she did. This would not be the way our Pate would introduce himself. However, what's more difficult to ascertain is what Jacken actually wants at the Citadel. This doesn't seem like a routine assassination, and in the prologue, we get this. Something made Pate hesitate. Is it some book you want? Some of the old Valyrian scrolls down in the locked vaults were said to be the only surviving copies in the world. What I want is none of your concern. Now, this could be George throwing us a bone with a not-so-subtle clue and has led to fans wondering if the faceless men seek to possess a book which came to be introduced by Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons. Here's the quote. Ten years ago, Tyrion had read a fragment of unnatural history that had eluded the Blessed Baelor, but he doubted that any of Barth's work had found its way across the Narrow Sea. 
And of course, there was even less chance of his coming on the fragmentary, anonymous, blood-soaked tome, sometimes called Blood and Fire, and sometimes The Death of Dragons, the only surviving copy of which was supposedly hidden away in a locked vault beneath the citadel. With the Bravosi despising slavery and the dragon lords and their dragons who facilitated the Valyrian Empire, and the news of three new dragons moving westward that we saw in this very chapter, fans see reasonable grounds for a motive for the faceless men to want a book called The Death of Dragons. However, it's worth noting that while the Bravosi took a dim view of Valyrian dragons, they might not have the same exact outlook about Danny's dragons, which have actively been used against the slave trade. In that case, there's a potential argument to be made that they might not be the ones seeking to destroy the dragons, which is at least in part supported by Marwyn's assertion to Sam that it was the Citadel who killed the dragons in the past. Who do you think killed all the dragons the last time around? Gallant dragon slayers armed with swords? The world the Citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery or prophecy or glass candles, much less for dragons. Ask yourself why Aemon Targaryen was allowed to waste his life upon the wall when by rights he should have been raised to Archmaester. His blood was why he could not be trusted, no more than I can. In either case, it will be interesting to see what this new pate gets up to at the Citadel and we'll surely witness during the Samwell chapters of The Winds of Winter. What's utterly fascinating in terms of the race to get Daenerys is that several of those threads converged right there in Marwyn's chamber in that final chapter of A Feast for Crows. Alaris from Dorne, fake pate from the Faceless Men, possibly the Citadel elite if Leo is a spy, and of course Marwyn himself, whose own motivations may be slightly more personal than the others. Sam Tarley, our new Old Town point of view, is perfectly placed to observe several of those things unfold. The fact that it says there was something about the pale, soft youth that he misliked when he speaks to Pate may be a hint that Sam senses something wrong, which could lead him to discover some peculiarities about this young man. If the fake Pate has given up his passion for Rosie or has become more adept at his studies, along with his apparent acceptance of the hated pig boy moniker, we might get to see Sam uncovering the existence of a mystery, if not its solution. And if suspicion blossoms amongst his fellows, or if the Ironborn should arrive in Old Town, it's not too hard to see fake Pate bringing his mission to a conclusion sooner than he'd planned, in which case Sam Tarley could be on hand to gain a sudden insight into what it was about the youth that had discomfited him. Of course, Sam's own agenda at the Citadel is of a much larger scope, and only time will tell if Alaris or Pate have any role to play in the wider sphere. Given the overall theme of convergence suggested by this chapter, we like to speculate this might very well be the case. Town is not the world. My father always said the world was bigger than any lord's castle. The identity mysteries in Old Town allow us to truly view this prologue chapter as a microcosm of the macrocosm. While the world is indeed a very large place, as Melander's father used to tell him, 
In this chapter, it's no coincidence that we find connections from the wider narrative woven into the action. George has written a self-contained story that nonetheless does a lot of heavy lifting in setting up important themes for the rest of the book, which includes, to a large degree, A Dance with Dragons, since he views those two books as two halves of a whole. Earlier, we talked about the characters representing a microcosm, with all the different reactions and opinions we'll see about Danny and her dragons represented in one place. We also mentioned the importance George placed on the first word of the chapter, dragons. Once again, the news of dragons that has arrived at the docks of Old Town is representing a trend in the wider world. This is news that's spreading one ship and one port at a time. And it was very important to the broader narrative for George to show this process in action, a task which he began in earnest with this chapter. As important as the news of dragons is to the narrative, this chapter also introduces us to a new location, providing the setting for several upcoming narrative threats, as well as numerous mysteries, including the presence of Sorella Sand and an operative of the Faceless Men at the Citadel, as well as providing us with important information on glass candles mentioned so briefly in A Clash of Kings with no further exposition, and introducing the theme of convergence. Convergence is a major theme of feast and dance, and from a meta perspective, it's the major issue that George encountered with the mechanics of his story while writing those two novels. As we move towards the climax of the series, it's very important that the far-flung characters and settings begin to come together. With the Old Town chapters, George begins to draw together a number of threads, and we see a number of previously impossible connections being established. Consider that Pate's death and the assumption of his identity by the alchemist brings the faceless men fully into this part of the narrative. In tandem, in A Feast for Crows, we're witnessing Arya's training at the House of Black and White, and in fact, it's through her chapters that we're able to solve the mystery of the alchemist's identity and Pate's death. Arya is connected to Jacken and the Faceless Men, and while she's in Braavos, she will also intersect, albeit briefly, with Sam Tarly, who will end up in the same setting as the Alchemist, wearing Pate's face by the end of the novel, creating a triangle of characters that otherwise would have been difficult to establish. At the same time, we have a connection being made possible between Dorne, Old Town, and Marine with the Sorella storyline, which is a mystery we can solve later in the book when her uncle Doran mentions her game. In that same thread, we begin to learn of the Dornish plot to ally with a Targaryen to gain their vengeance on the Lannisters, and we get to see Marwyn, first mentioned in a Daenerys point of view, and who's apparently taken Alaris into his confidence, begin his journey to Slaver's Bay. And a third trio of connections suggests itself when we solve the identity mysteries in Old Town. There is currently a triple infiltration of sorts of the institution taking place. Sorella Sand masquerading as Alaris the Sphinx, the alchemist wearing Pate's face, and Sam Tarly come down from the Night's Watch with orders to forge his chain, but now under new orders from Marwyn to keep much of his story secret. And then there's the possibility of intrigue surrounding Leo Tyrell, which could bring in a connection with the politics of King's Landing in a future volume. With the deaths of Kevin Lannister and Grand Maester Pycelle, the Tyrells are poised to take control there, and we could be seeing Maester Gorman soon taking Pycelle's place, with his nephew Leo possibly positioned to act as a conduit of information from Old Town.
Ultimately, several mysteries are yet to be resolved, but this chapter has done a marvelous job of establishing them, while at the same time functioning as a standalone story arc, a tragic romance of sorts, that provides a hook to readers eager to see the mysteries to their conclusion. It can be no accident that there are passing references to the higher mysteries and an age of wonder and terror in this chapter. George is preparing to draw in the ever-widening circle of his narrative to an ever-decreasing focal point, and those themes will play a huge role in that process. Old Town is not the world, but in this chapter it has provided us with a microcosm of it, and by its very nature is acting as a vehicle for the author to begin making his expansive world smaller while retaining our sense of the macrocosm. Unlike Pate, whose point of view ended with him saying, I don't understand, we expect that one day we, the readers, will understand all of the threads and undercurrents introduced to us in this prologue. Thanks so much for joining us for this look at Pate's prologue, and now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for spending so much time in getting this chapter exactly right. And as usual, we'll end today with shout-outs to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Thanks to all of you, and if you enjoy the podcast, consider becoming a patron, and you could be hearing your name here, too. Heartfelt thanks to... Amber, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Tim, B-Word, Fatima, Girl with No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrow Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Blythe Spirit, Amber, and Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to History of Westeros, Heather, Tomas, Catherine, Tree Girl, Amber, Gary, Chris, Alex, Convenience or Death, David, Core and Half Hand, Amanda, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arion, Greg, Brendan B. Fish, Steve, Zainab, Megan E., Yvonne, Felix, Brian, Matt, Jose, Michael M., Major Woody, Tanner, Aiden, Dimitri, Spentrails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Oakenfist, the Wolverine Knight whose sigil is crushed Buckeye Nuts on a maze field, Mary, Sam, Clerk Nasty of the North, Eric, and Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or by email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with another new episode. Bye for now.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 